Open your Bible this morning again to the book of Lamentations, chapter 2. This is our third message from this verse of Scripture in Lamentations. Seems like when you think you're about through with a couple of messages, you get another one. That's good. He says in verse 14 of Lamentations 2, Thy prophets have seen vain and foolish things for thee. They have not discovered thine iniquity to turn away thy captivity, but have seen for thee false burdens and causes of banishments. Without repeating a lot of things, you know that lamentations attributed to Jeremiah as he sat and looked at the city after the Chaldeans had come down Nebuchadnezzar and they had just devastated the place, carried away all the people. The sound of children in the streets was gone and it was desolation. And it didn't have to be. It wasn't supposed to be. The people in a time of plenty were getting slack in their religious convictions. Oh, they had their temple and they did all their worship and they did all of that. But as he says so many times, your heart's not in it. You're doing the right things. You're singing the right songs. You're going to the right place, but your heart's not in it. And the more your heart is not in it, the more it's evident that your heart is in something else and things of this world, they begin creeping in and you get busy and then you start giving in your convictions. You start easing up here and letting go there and you start making excuses. And instead of being the kind of person that God wants you to be, you're just a person who acknowledges with your mind God and his ways, but with your heart, you're doing what you want. You're doing your own thing, which is what the word iniquity in that verse is all about. It's living a life that suits me, but I keep God in mind. And as a result of it, because of the insincerity and because of the trivialness that the people had about God, they were judged. Now, they were warned, and they shouldn't have been judged because Jeremiah, who's called the weeping prophet, I mean, he sat outside the city and just wept. He was the only voice in his time after the days of King Josiah and all of the kings after him. There wasn't many, but the ones after him. He warned them. He warned them day and night. He told them what was going to happen, and they just pushed him out, threw him in jail, starved him. I guess he was a weeping, bony prophet because he was treated terribly. One man, one voice, and nobody would listen. He wasn't in the in crowd. He wasn't in what's going on. He wasn't, what, cool? And so they didn't like him. They didn't like his standards. They didn't like his call to this strict way of God. Like in the days of Isaiah, they said, quit prophesying about the Holy One of Israel. Quit shoving this down our throats about being holy people and having these convictions. Man, ease up a little bit. Or as the princes in the days of Moses, when they came to him in the wilderness, he said, all the people are holy. You're not better than we are. We're all holy people. And they couldn't see their sins. They couldn't see the indifference of their lifestyle, how it just didn't mesh with what God had taught them. And Jeremiah wept because he said, you're going to be judged. Terrible things are coming. We still hear little indications of it in the age that we're in because we're living in a time now when people are just slowly easing away from this, just easing away. 
If you're a youngster, you grew up in this thing, you might have noticed even in your own parents that we used to do this, but we don't anymore. We used to have this, but we don't anymore. Mom used to wear dresses, but she doesn't anymore. We used to wear head covering, but we don't anymore. Everything's beginning to shift into a newer, you know, every, hey, we're all right. And there is a warning voice that goes out, and you hear it occasionally. This isn't good. This is not good. What was true then is still true today. What was right then is still right today. And what God held us to 20 years ago, he still holds us to today. And you cannot make excuses for why you don't do that 20 years later. You can't do it. I mean, things like that. People don't like this. Now, I know you all love to be warned, but a lot of people don't like being warned, being preached at. They don't like the idea that we're told if we don't line up that something's going to happen. Well, we're doing better now than we've ever done, probably. And so there's just this, I listen to what you're saying, but, you know, I, I have my own way of seeing it. I have my own view of it. And as a result, judgment came. And he said the thing that corrupted the people, the thing that distorted their idea of the way they should be was the prophets. We would call them today the preachers. Whoever they listen to, usually some popular voice that a lot of people gravitate towards, uh, some figurehead, a book writing, very popular, somebody who's good in speech or good in something, and people are attracted. They are for a while. They're always attracted this, to this stuff for a while, and then something else comes along, and they go to something else. It's just an age of that type of thing. They're just unsettled. And so... People are doing that, and that's the kind of time that we're in. And a lot of what people are hearing today is kind of flaky. I think charismatics are some of the strangest people on this earth. It seems like they'll almost do anything to get a crowd or to get a name or some notoriety and some new way of doing things or some new twist on scriptures, and people gravitate to that. Again, they don't stay long because every movement has a crowd. Generally, a lot of them are the same people. They go from this one to this one to this one to this one. You really can't count on them. If you're a preacher, you can't depend on them because they're only going to be there for a while until they get tired of that, and then they want something else. And so the warning came. He said, these prophets are prophesying foolish things to you. Jeremiah said in chapter 23, he said, they're making you vain. They're making you useless people. God can't use you because what God is saying is not what you want to hear, and you won't listen to what he wants. And so consequently, to put all that back where I started, this is why the wrath of God fell on these people. And the wrath of God was devastating, and it was very difficult. Look in chapter 2 here again in verse 4 and verse 5. This is what happens when people just don't want to do it, and God said, okay, that's it. That's it. Or as he said in Ezekiel 22, he said, the picture that God sees of the land is horrible. It's full of uncleanness. He said, I sought for one man who would stand before me for the people. Somebody who would stand on the behalf of these people and cry out, I'll spare the land. He said, I couldn't find one, not even one. So he brought judgment and devastation on the people. And when that comes... When that kind of judgment and wrath comes, we don't know what this is like. We read about it and try to imagine what it's like, but we don't know what this is like. We don't. None of us do. 
we have been sort of spiritually sheltered our whole lives. We haven't had the heavenly hammer fall on us. But we're warned. We keep hearing warnings. We keep hearing things on the inside of us. The Spirit of God keeps prompting us about things we're doing we shouldn't do. Is that a warning? Or we feel a certain conviction about why am I letting myself do this? Why am I talking like that? Why am I going to that place? Why am I wearing this? Or whatever it is that you would get convicted about that you've gotten away from. Those little warnings are in there so that you can be spared. Listen, God is going to judge all unrighteousness on this earth. If you're in the crowd, you'll be with them. But when the hammer falls, the righteous suffer alongside the unrighteous. When famine came to the land, holy people suffered hunger too. But God has a certain way, I'll get to it in a minute. God has something special for his people, even in times of difficulty. And I hope that we are his people, because we certainly can be. In chapter 2 and verse 4, this whole book describes wrath. I'm just selecting a few verses. The whole book of Jeremiah tells about this, but I'm just pointing these out to show you. He hath bent his bow like an enemy. He stood with his right hand as an adversary and slew all them that were pleasant to the eye in the tabernacle of the daughter of Zion. He poured out fury like a fire. God says when he does this, he becomes like an enemy. Well, we've never known God to be an enemy or an adversary, but he's somebody who no longer shows favor to you. And he's somebody who is doling out just recompense for people's sins and people's mindset. Iniquity, in other words. Iniquity is about me, what I want on my terms in this way. It's about me, iniquity. In the last days, the Bible says, iniquity shall abound. Describing men shall be lovers of themselves, haters of God, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, seeking it my way, looking for the little church like I like, church shopping, get one I like. It's what pleases me. It's all about me. And God says from this kind of poison in a man's life comes a kind of life that God must judge. Now, it's not that God takes pleasure in judgment. He doesn't. God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God doesn't rejoice when sinners die. For what God has promised and given is a chance to be delivered from all of this. And the opposite of deliverance is captivity. And he said, my people have gone into captivity because of the stuff they're hearing and the effect it's had on their life. And this is what happens. I become your adversary. I become your adversary. Look at verse 5. The Lord was as an enemy. He swallowed up Israel. He hath swallowed up all her palaces. He hath destroyed his strongholds. He hath increased in the daughter of Judah, mourning and lamentation. In verse 6, he hath taken away the tabernacle as if it were a garden. He hath destroyed his place of the assembly. The Lord hath caused the solemn feast and the Sabbath to be forgotten in Zion and hath despised and in the indignation of his anger the king and the priest. 
There's nothing pleasant anymore about all that people are doing in the name of the Lord. He's against all of it. No more of your songs. As he said in Isaiah 1, that's enough of all your sacrifices. I don't want them anymore. I despise your sacrifices. I despise all your acts of faithfulness. Or as he said in Isaiah 58, he says, cry aloud and spare not. Show my people their sins. In verse 2, he says, yet my people approach me as though they love me and they love to sing songs. They do all the right things, but their heart's not right. And God said, I'm going to judge all of you. I'm going to judge all of you. I'm going to be like an enemy. Even your tabernacle, your sanctuary. Think of it. The very core of Jewish life was worship. One nation, of all the nations it's ever been, this one nation, the very core of their existence, their being, their effectiveness, their grandeur, was worship, the worship of God. When they were in the wilderness, their tabernacle was in the midst of all their camps. They camped all around because God was the focus of their life. He gave them a law which is all about him. I want you to understand this is what I'm like. This is how holy I am and this is what I want. And the beloved Ten Commandments, people say, oh, we ought to hang them everywhere. All the Ten Commandments do is declare what's right with no provision to do anything about those that violate them. Four of them pertain to God. Six of them pertain to me and you relating to each other. That's all it does. But it's a declaration of who God is and what God wants. And man looks at that, and he knows in his own heart and his soul, I have broken every one of them. There's no fine print. There's nothing at the bottom where it tells you how much you have to put down to get it and all of that. There's no fine print. You're a sinner. You violated the law of God. You didn't have to sin. Sin is a choice. You did it anyway. And God declared by his law, I am your God. I gave this law to nobody else. I gave it to you. I chose no other nation to be my people. I chose you. I chose you when you were a nation inside of a nation. You were slaves in Egypt. You were the least of all people. But I loved you there, and I drew you out because I loved you, and I brought you to me because I loved you. And I'm going to manifest myself to you and show you who I am because I want you to be my special people on this earth a people of, full of priests and worship. And they would for a while, they did it, but, you know, they fell away from that. They got away from that. And this is the way it works. If you will not honor me, I will not honor you. Remember the prophet when he met, they said, they said, the Lord is with you as long as you're with him. If you do right, he'll bless you. If you do wrong, he'll judge you. This is my sanctuary. Come and honor me. If you will not honor me, I will not honor you. If you turn against me, I will turn against you. And there's no greater adversary in anybody's life ever possible than to have God against you. You fear not the people who can take your life, but you better fear him who has the power and authority over your soul and all eternity is in his hands. That's who you fear. And so he goes on here to say in verse 7 that he had abandoned his sanctuary where we meet. He's not there anymore. You can meet, but he's not there. It's a dead service. 
He's not there. Nothing affects anybody. We go there, we leave there. Remember that verse, maybe you do, in Ecclesiastes, I think it's chapter 8. He said, I saw the wicked buried who had gone into the temple and had come from the temple. The temple changed nothing. There was nothing there. It was a ritual. It was a routine. It's the way we do Sunday morning. It's just a thing we do. We feel better about it, but we're not better. Because when we go out of the room and go into the world, we're the same creatures we were last week or 30 years ago, wherever how old you are. Nothing has changed. We've just learned how to do what we've read he wants us to do, and we seem to think we merit his goodness because of it. And God began to judge his people. He said, here's what you're going to find. I'm not going to be there. I'm going to be your adversary and your enemy. Nothing's going to work right for you. Let me tell you something. The wrath of God is not a pleasant subject. But the Bible speaks of the day of the Lord when he pours out his wrath on this earth. Whew. You really don't want to be here. And folks, I'm going to be here. You really don't want to be here. The cave isn't deep enough to hide in. You don't want to be here. Pray that you'll be accounted worthy to escape all these things. Whatever you want to do with that. Verse 8, he said, the wall's broken down. And the wall in the Bible is a symbol of protection. Proverbs speaks about a man who has no control over his spirit. It's like a city whose walls are broken down. That means the enemy comes in and just destroys and does everything he can to make your life miserable. You have no protection. God says the wall is down. Verse 10, he speaks about the elders and the kings and all of that. They're gone. They're done. They're not going to help you. There's no more rejoicing. There's no word. Nobody to lean on, to count on. God isn't there. He's your enemy. He's an adversary. And there's no relief in wrath and judgment. He saw all of this coming. He knew how bad it was going to be. And when it comes, he knew that it's just going to be horrible. They're going to be carried off into captivity, you and your little ones. They're going to be chained like a bunch of slaves, and they're going to walk all the way over like humiliated slaves. They took the king and put his eyes out after they killed his children in front of him. Then they put his eyes out, Zedekiah, and then they led him away blind. It's devastation. It's things for which there's no relief. There's no place you can go to get some help. If your help comes from the Lord, he's your enemy. This is what Jeremiah was weeping about. This didn't have to be. It didn't have to come to this. You're in this captive state because of your iniquity, and these people that have preached to you and led you have brought this about. I warned you, I warned you, like in Colossians 1, Paul said, I warn every man I meet. When he was brought before Felix, he said he reasoned for him about judgment. It's everywhere, all through the Bible, when you get down to specific things, it comes down to this, avoid this. A loving God has given you a way out. Take advantage of it. Don't treat his love as something that you have access to anytime you want to just because you need a little boost. It's not like that at all. Look at chapter 3 for just a minute. 
chapter 3. Look at verse 7. Now this in verse 7 describes what a curse is. This is what a curse is. You are hedged in and you cannot get out. That's a curse. One of the definitions of a curse that we gave was to render powerless to resist. Think of the people that you know who are under some kind of a curse, or if you like the word captivity better, who are captive, captive to their feelings, captive to their passions, captive to whatever, and they can't get out. They can't get out. Their children won't get out. Their grandchildren won't get out. It's just the way the devil has gotten himself in a family, and he came to kill it and to steal it and to destroy it. Always clamoring, always complaining, always whining, always blaming somebody because they don't know how to get out. They're bound to something that absolutely masters them and controls them. And they're under a curse. They can't stop drinking. They can't stop cursing. They can't stop looking. They can't leave alone. They can't stop buying. They can't stop eating. They're just bound. Something has mastered their affections and their appetite, and they can't let go of it. Oh, I go to church and I try. That doesn't work. And he said, you read it. He, God, hath hedged me about that I cannot get out. He hath made my chain heavy. Verse 8, it does me no good to pray. And when I cry and shout, he shutteth out my prayer. Can he do that? Well, put your finger right there for a moment and turn back to the book before this, Jeremiah. Look in Jeremiah chapter 7 and Jeremiah chapter 11. Jeremiah 7 and Jeremiah 11. Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 16. And the Lord says, Therefore pray not thou for this people, neither lift up cry nor prayer for them, neither make intercession to me, for I will not hear you. Now, would you say that God is very upset with these people? Listen, I'm talking about his people. He told Jeremiah, one man who was different, one man who will suffer with them but will not finish like them. He said, don't even pray for these people. Don't make intercession. Don't cry out to me. I know your heart is touched. You're brokenhearted. Don't even pray for them. I will not hear. Look in chapter 11 and verse 11. Jeremiah 11 and 11. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, behold, I will bring evil upon them, which they shall not be able to escape. That's a curse. And though they shall cry unto me, yet I will not hearken unto them. That's an extra curse. The only source you've got to get out of your trouble is God, and he will not listen. Because you and your stubbornness and in your iniquitous state didn't want to do it his way, don't want all that stuff. And you're too cool for God, so you do it your own way, and God says, okay, here's the deal. Look at verse 14. Therefore pray not thou for this people, neither lift up a cry or prayer for them, for I will not hear them at time that they cry unto me in their trouble. It doesn't have to be like that. 
But I'm trying to show you this morning before I get to the good part. This is what happens when people are indifferent to God and God becomes their enemy. The things that worked once at some point early in your life, it might have worked out. You prayed for and got healed or you got prayed for and things worked out good. Now it comes to the point where it won't work at all. God doesn't even hear. You're wasting your time praying. It's not going to work. Verse 11 of chapter 3 is desolation. Desolation. He had turned aside my ways. He hath pulled me in pieces. He hath made me desolate. Desolate means to be deprived of comfort. I got no relief. Verse 15 this happens. This is what it comes to. He hath filled me with bitterness. He hath made me drunken with wormwood. Bitterness. Deep distress of mind. Vexation. It's why people throw things. It's why some people just can't get over an old wound or something done because of bitterness of soul. She cheated on me. He cheated on me. He lied to me. She lied to me. They stole from me. They did. They did. And you get this bitterness of soul and you're unrelentingly vexed because of it. You can't forgive people because you can't quit thinking about what somebody did to you. You don't even realize that the devil uses somebody to control you because somebody out there, the mention of their names, throws you into this bitterness or this forlornness and you just can't overcome something. Bitterness. What a horrible state for your mind to be in. There's nothing there but vexation. Verse 17, there's no peace. Thou hast removed my soul afar off from peace. I have no peace. I'm agitated constantly. I'm not at peace at all. And verse 18 is despair. And I said, my strength and my hope is perished from the Lord. I have nothing. Now, the picture I've painted, and there's so much more to this, but the picture you're painted here is of the kind of people, the condition that people are in when God judges them. Now, they're trying to make ends meet. They're trying to do right. They know an army's coming. They know they can't defeat it. They wish they had listened. Now they can't, and there's no way to escape from what's coming. If you flee to Egypt, they'll get you there too. They'll get you halfway there and bring you back and probably kill you in front of your family or something. This is horrible things that are happening. And it doesn't have to be. Jeremiah said, if you will repent and turn from your wicked ways, God will cause you to dwell in this land forever. But if you don't, they're going to take you out of this land. He told him, he said, you're living worse than the people who lived here before you. And the people who lived here before you, God said, I'm driving them out, using you to drive them out because of their abominations. And he says, and now you're worse than they were with your temple, with your priest, with your princes and your teachers. With all your time to go to church and study and grow and learn and be, with all of that stuff, you're worse. How many of you, having moved here, are worse off now than you were when you got here? Shame on you. 
If you came to this place and it's gotten worse for you since you've been here, all I can say is that nothing that I've said and nothing that you've heard has changed anything in your life for the better, but it's gotten worse. The problem has to be something within yourself. I meant that just like I said it to all of us. We're in the last days. This is not a game we're here to play. This is not seeing who can out-memorize somebody else or out-quote somebody. This is a life. It's a life we live, and life is lived by choices. And what you are right now sitting here this morning, you are because of the choices you've made, whether good or bad. You made it. And God, while we haven't been under this great wrath and terrible things you see here yet, let us avoid it. Because you see, this is where it comes. Let's call this the divine or the spiritual moment. I meant to call it the divine moment last week. Let me call it a spiritual moment this week in verse 19. Verse 19 and 20. Remembering mine affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall, my soul hath them still in remembrance and is humbled in me. In verse 21, remembering, I'm thinking about all this stuff. And then there comes this activity from God to certain ones, to a few. There's this work of God in the middle of distress and unrest. And this moving of the Spirit comes in, especially for the few. Now, I say the few because in time of trouble here, these people aren't seeking God. Jeremiah was. Jeremiah didn't put his hand on the plow to keep it there as long as it was smooth. But when things got as bad as they could, he held onto that plow. He wept and he wept and he kept going. He didn't look back and I wish I could. He just kept on going. But most people let go. Oh, I can't handle this. Oh, that's too much. That's too hard. Oh, I, I'm not ready for that. They don't hear anything. There's no verse 21 for those people. But for those who have at some point listened and learned and at least are trying, there's this verse 21, this moment of God. The CEV version, whatever that version is, and I don't promote any of them, but I just have a list of them. And sometimes it's interesting and difficult verses to see what other translators say. They know more about it than us. This is what one translation said about verse 21. He said, then I remember something that fills me with hope. Because all we have so far is despair, prayers, bitterness of soul, desolation, destruction, gloom, doom, no hope, God's an enemy. What are we going to do? Well, I tell you what, I ain't going to just sit here. I'm, going, I'm getting out of here, except for the few who say, oh, God, almighty God. And there comes this, in the dark, light. In Psalm 112, light arises in darkness for the upright. Did you all hear what I just said? Light doesn't arise in darkness for people in gloom. It arises in darkness for the upright because the upright have moments of darkness too. But God doesn't leave them in that darkness. 
because light arises in darkness for the upright. That's Psalm 112. Well, another one here, a good news Bible said this, and again, I'm not promoting these. He said, yet hope returns when I remember this one thing. Now, what's hope? Something I can count on. If I can count on something, I have hope. Hope is the expectation of something that is, to me, a sure thing. Oh, yes, this is going to work. How do you know about it? Because I believe it. Because faith is the substance that gives reality to things you're expecting to happen. Another translation, this is God's Word translation. Got to like that. The reason I can still find hope is that I keep this one thing in mind. What? Another translation says, I bring back this to my heart, and on account of this, I hope. What? What in the midst of all of this doom and desolation, what is it you're talking about that gives you hope? Well, let's look at verse 22 for a moment. What does it say? Where we sing this song, it is of the Lord's mercies. That we're not consumed. I thought they were being consumed. Haven't I just described being consumed? Weren't they carried away into captivity? Wasn't terrible things happening to them? Go to Psalm 42. I'll come back to that. Psalm 42, verse 6. This happens. It does happen. In Psalm 42 and verse 6. He said, oh, my God, my soul is cast down within me. Has it ever been like that with you ever? Ever. Have you ever had one of those times in your life when God seems to be gone? That he was once there, you were invigorated last week. Woo! And then this week, it seems like God has said, now, I'm not going to train you to just live like, woo. So I want you to trust me on the basis of what I said, not what you feel. I gave you a goosebump, and that's good. You need that. A man liveth not by goosebumps. So I want you to take me at my word, and I want you to put a premium on my word. And when you do, I want you to honor me because the word is mine. I gave it to you, and I want you to put all your marbles on that. I want you to esteem his word like God does. He esteems his word even more than his own name. Psalm 138.2. He puts his word above his name because he watches over that one thing to perform it. What did he tell Martha, Martha? Thou art troubled by so many things, but Martha, only one thing is necessary. You know what it is? The Word of God. Mary was sitting there not peeling potatoes, but letting her heart embrace as best she knew how, as best that God gave her the ability to, to embrace his Word because that's the most important thing in the world. Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 6, everybody forsook him. He said, will you go away also? And they said, where would we go? Thou hast the words of life. 
Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Deuteronomy 32, verse 40-something says, these words are life. Outside of this word, there is absolutely no expectation. There is nothing outside of the promises of this book. Nothing. You cannot invent something that will give you eternal hope. There is none. The only thing given, the only possibility for eternal life, and the only thing that is ever certain and sure and steadfast is this book. The content of this word, this is the only thing God has ever said he'll watch over to perform. Nothing else. And I think of the day all these inventions, how they set aside this. They don't want to preach this part of the word. People are offended by that. And, you know, if I say that, he's going to be offended or she's going to be offended. And I don't want what, Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You're not called to entertain people and babysit saints. You're called to preach the word. Paul said to the elders in Ephesus, In Acts 20, he said, I haven't held back anything from you all. They didn't like everything he said. He said, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. This is all we've got. This is all we've got. This is why the devil attacks us so much. Well, you know, the Bible says, but. Oh, there is no, the Bible says, but. The Bible says, therefore. That's the way it works. Yeah, but that kind of a word, when your attitude and your heart is set like that so that there's nothing that supersedes this, and this is the most important single thing in your life as a Christian. Again, Martha, Martha, one thing is necessary. And you esteem his word that highly, and you gather to hear it. I don't care if you've heard it before or not. You gather to hear it and let God do something on the inside. This is the word he will use in your trouble to deliver you from your captivity. It's this word. Now, Psalm 42, verse 6. Oh, my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore... I will remember thee from the land of Jordan and from so forth. I will remember thee. My mind will reflect back to who you are and what you have said about yourself. Why would he do that? Because he's in trouble. The only way out of trouble is God. That's the only thing you got. This is only, I don't mean to holler and be emotional. It's good for me too, but folks, God wants us to know that what he does and this prompting of the spirit to remember what you have heard is for those who have listened. It's not for those who attend church meetings. It's for those who listen. It's for those who think. It's for those who ponder or meditate. Those who let this ding, a little conviction in your heart, take you home and set you down and say, you know, that was somewhat personal today, what you heard. You know, you need to listen. And you begin to listen to that. Or you talk about his mercies, his compassions, they fail not. And how good he is. And you let yourself enjoy the fact that your mind is racing trying to imagine yourself living in the goodness of God. 
walking beside still waters and green pastures with the Lord and a table before you and, and not fearing the valley of the shadow of death and living on a level that you've heard of but you never listened to, but now you're thinking about it. It's something that's beginning to get in your heart and find a little room to lodge in. Something that is accessible to the Holy Spirit to put you over because the Holy Spirit gives you the only thing God honors, and that's his word. Not your good intentions, not your opinions, but his word. If you don't hide this word in your heart, it won't work for you. There is no power in an empty mind. There is none. Psalm 77, go over to the right just a little bit. Psalm 77, look, listen at this. You've got to like this. If you're from Kentucky, you'll like this. If not, bear with me. Verse 2, in the day of my trouble, here we are again. Do we have troubles? Let me assure you. Let me assure you in case you think, I'm a believer, I don't have trouble. You will have troubles in this life. Think it not Strange. Okay, that type of thing. Psalm 77 and verse 1. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, even unto God with my voice, and he gave ear unto me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My sore ran in the night and ceased not. My soul refused to be comforted. Have you ever been there? Have you ever had a long night in your life where you're crying out to God, but it doesn't look like it's working? There's no instant relief? Oh, God, your child is coughing or there's a fever? I've been here. See, I know what I'm talking about when I say there's been some dark, lonely, difficult nights in my life, especially with children. Because your mind, you're hearing this devilish voice saying, this is it. This is going to turn out bad. You're going to jail. You're going to be run out of town. This is it. And yet there's this something that was stronger. The voice in the heart was stronger than the voice in the mind. And the war that was going on between my human thoughts and this presence of the word. And you just stayed with the word a little longer and... A kid convulsing in your arms with a, I don't know how, what her temperature was. We didn't, we threw thermometers away. One thing just popped in my mind. Count it all joy. This joy, his joy, grows and grows. You start in this joy, his joy. Start dancing around the house with a convulsing child. And I knew that if anybody, Anybody anywhere in the world, maybe outside of my wife, had seen me doing that, they would have called somebody with white coats. It didn't end right away. It lasted. It kept going. It, it kept going. It kept going. And I kept singing, and my mind would say, oh, look at this. I can relate to this. Verse 3, I remembered God. I remembered God and was troubled. How in the world can you remember God and be troubled? Troubled. You know what this word, the Hebrew, I found in one dictionary said, it means to make a loud noise like, hmm. That's what it said. I didn't write the Hebrew either. But it says to make a loud noise like, hmm. 
You ever had a buzz or a hum that wouldn't go away? Ugh. Okay, me neither, but anyway. I remembered God and... <laughs> anyway. I complained. And my spirit was overwhelmed. Selah, think about this. This is what I started saying. Just because we do this. Thou holdest mine eyes waking. I'm so troubled, I'm so agitated that I cannot speak. Well, I've considered the days of old. Just when you start looking back, wishing you hadn't heard this message, wishing you'd had that tooth pulled before you heard that about trusting God. I considered the days of old, the years of the ancient time. I called to remembrance my song in the night. I communed with my own heart, and my spirit made diligent search. What is wrong? What is happening here? And so I said, verse 7, will the Lord cast off forever? Am I going to just die dancing on this floor and be made a fool of? Will he be favorable no more than verse 8 for those of us in Kentucky? Is his mercy clean gone? You got to like that. You couldn't say, is his mercy gone clean? He said, is his mercy clean gone? Forever? Does his promise fail forevermore? Have you ever thought that? Have you ever thought that maybe you've overextended yourself in this trusting of God or quoting his Bible that maybe he doesn't quite go that far as you've been taught? Well, it's what the devil does. It's a temptation. Verse 9, hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath he in anger shut up his tender mercies? Then the divine moment when God slaps you and gets your attention and he says, none of that trash is true. That is the fruit of your moment. Then I said, this is my infirmity, but, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High and so forth. If you're a Christian, if you're one of those who in Psalm 112, I think it's verse 4, until the upright there ariseth light and darkness, if you really are upright, this moment in which God alerts you, gets a hold of you, gets your attention, and he says, while you're going through all of this, remember what I have said. Remember those meetings? Remember we talked about faith and healing and trusting God and overcoming and being delivered? Remember that? You remember when I taught you that? Well, I watch over that also. Now, you're caving into your trouble right now. You don't think it's fair. You don't know why it's happening, but it's happening. You're being tempted, and you don't think it's fair. But go back. Go back and think about what God has said. Let your mind begin to recall the wonderful things that God has promised. And then take that and lay hold of that before God. Because this will get you delivered. You will arise out of your darkness. The shadows will begin to cease. The loneliness will give way to fellowship with God who is real and who is there. And you will no longer count yourself to be a victim. But you have power now. 
something begins to flood in that you've heard of old, you paid attention. Yes, I remember that. The Holy Spirit has taken that word you heard and quickening it to you. It becomes a living word, and you're starting to hope and trust in it, and therefore you have hope. Yes, I will not die, but I will live. How do you know? Because the word says so. Well, I know somebody said that, and it didn't work for them. I'm not so-and-so. I am me. What they heard and why they said it, I don't know. Maybe they were just trying to get God to do something because they memorized his word. I believe it. I'm trusting in God that he will do this. And in verse 10, he said, this is my infirmity. I will remember the years of the Most High. Verse 11, I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. That's what we should do when trouble comes. What does the word say? What does the word say? Oh, Brother Hamlet, I got this problem. Okay, before you tell me your problem, what does the word say about it? Well, I don't know. Well, then what do you think I'm going to tell you? Oh, my Brother Hamlet, I've got a problem. I don't know what to do. What does the word say? Before you call or get on the phone about it, what does the word say? What promise has God made? Well, I, I don't remember. I have taught on it 16 times. Uh, I wasn't there, 14 of them. That was a choice you made, wasn't it? I certainly couldn't come out there and grab you, tear a sheet of paper out of my Bible. I couldn't wad it up and grab Thomas here, but the hair was here. And you shove it down there. Well, get to swallow that. <laughs> that ain't going to work. I'd lose a member to boot. <laughs> it's something about the fleshly tables of your heart. When the word goes from ink to inscriptions on your heart, and you begin to take delight in what you've heard, and you don't forget it. Oh, I've heard something about, no, 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 no. I'm talking about write it down. It's one of the greatest inventions of man are these little postums. You can write stuff everywhere and stick it anywhere you want to. You can put notes all through your Bible. Little reminders of what you can count on, what you can lean on. That's what God uses in your darkness to get you through. Go on over to Psalm 143, okay? Look at verse 3. For the enemy hath persecuted my soul. He has smitten my life down to the ground. He hath made me to dwell in darkness as those that have been long dead. Therefore, my spirit is overwhelmed within me. My heart within me is desolate. I'm going through one of those long nights. But, verse 5, I remember... Here it is again. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all thy works. I muse or ponder the work of thy hands. I stretch forth my hands unto thee. My soul thirsteth after thee as a thirsty land. Think of it. Hear me speedily, O Lord. My spirit faileth. Hide not thy face from me, lest I be likened to them that go down to the pit. Cause me to hear thy loving kindness in the morning. For in thee, that's verse 8. So you thought I was entertaining you, but I was quoting verse 8 with a song. Cause me to hear thy loving kindness in the morning, for in thee do I trust. Cause me to know the way wherein I should walk, for I lift up my soul unto thee. Verse 9, deliver me, O Lord. Look at that. From mine enemies, I flee unto thee to hide me. Teach me to do thy will. Verse 10. Verse 11, quicken me. Old. Isn't that a wonderful song? This is a song for the upright. 
It's what God does specially and specifically for his people who are in turmoil. The days of turmoil are many in this life. Difficulty confronts every one of us. This is not an easy life. It takes sheer, pure dedication to God on his terms to live this life. And yet for those who are willing to do that, light arises in their darkness for the upright and gives them hope. Remember this, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. Now listen, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able, but will with the temptation provide what? What do you suppose it is? The word of God is illumined to your mind and it becomes a living word that cannot fail. For the few that get it. He will provide a way of escape so that you can bear it. He doesn't always just get you out of it, but while you're in the midst of it, you're not falling apart anymore. You're not saying, oh God, where are you? You've clean gone. You don't do that anymore. You don't enjoy it. If you enjoy trouble, you need deliverance but you overcome, you hold fast, you endure as much as you have to endure because you know that God will not let it get bigger than you are. God will not allow you to be overwhelmed for he will provide for you a way of escape. He will provide for you all of those things, a way of escape so that you can bear it. This is what he does. Again, I'm talking about people who are acquainted with what God has said, who have listened, who have paid attention. What can a man remember? What could the Holy Spirit use of the word of God in times of trouble if you have an uninformed mind? If you're without this word dwelling in you, you're uninformed. Oh, you heard it, but it's not there. Again, you knock on the door, but nobody's home. That's why I'm saying it is now, while there is a time of peace, while we have sensibilities to some degree in our country, get a hold of this. Get a hold of it. Lamentations 3, would you go back to that? Lamentations 3, so we can begin to close. This is the beginning of your deliverance. God quickens you with his word. You've been going along with what everybody else is going along with who's in this deep, deep trouble. Or that you've only taken his word for granted. But now it's different. This divine moment has come. God has touched you specifically on the shoulder to say, you're not going to perish. Listen to me. Look at verse 40. What a beautiful song. Let us search and try our ways and sing some more songs to the Lord. Is that what it said? Let us search and try our ways and what? 
Turn again to the Lord. Can you turn again to the Lord? Well, we're hopeless if we can't. We get away from God. He could let us go, but he doesn't, does he? He has a way of getting your attention. Let us search and try our ways. I've tried everybody else's. But God said, look in the mirror and try his ways. Test his ways. Think about his way, the way you're going. Look at what you're doing. Look at the choices you make. Look at the attitudes you have. Look at the way you fly off the handle or you're this or that or you're gossipy or slant. Look at you. This is the way you're living. The choices you're making to be whoever you want to be, this is your way. Let us search and try our ways which are obviously in opposition to God. Let's turn away from this stuff. Let's turn again back to the Lord. We turn again unto the Lord. We turn back unto the Lord. He'll have mercy on us. It means like 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourself. See if you're in the faith or not. Yeah, I know you're there in a bright place, but are you in it? Examine yourself. Don't hold back anything in your examination. Don't justify yourself. Be in agreement with the Lord. Remember 1 Corinthians 11? If we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. If we saw ourselves as God sees us and refused to compromise ourselves, we wouldn't give God a cause to judge us. Turn from your sins. Turn from your ways. Turn again to the Lord. Didn't the prodigal do that? What did the prodigal do when he was having fun? He wasn't thinking about God. Somebody could have said, you know, you're not living right. Hey, it's my life. Leave me alone, okay? But now you heard in Sunday school class you shouldn't live. Hey, off of my case, okay? But he heard something. Then one day he was slopping the hogs. Remember that? He said, I wish I had some slop to eat. And then that moment, he turned around. He went back to where he came. He thought, in my daddy's house, my daddy's house is clean. My daddy's house is in order. My daddy has plenty to eat. I should have stayed there. Not everybody that went astray had this happen, but he did. The temper of his conviction was it turned him around. He went back home. I mean, he humbled himself. He said, Daddy, I am not worthy to live in this house anymore at all. I have lived like a dog. I see myself like I am. I don't deserve to be here. But I want to come back. I just be a servant. When God turns you around, he's got a ring waiting for you. He's got a robe waiting for you, and he's got some shoes. You don't have to wear them old rubber boots anymore. He can give you some shoes. He's waiting for you to come back. Or you can give up, throw in the towel, and join all the other murmurs and walk away and say, well, it doesn't work. Let go of the plow. That was all right for a while, I guess, but it ain't going to work for me. And turn away from it. But for those who come back, those who turn around, and some of you know what I'm talking about, and God graciously rescues you, brings you back. It's Psalm 103. 
It's Psalms 103. And if you've been brought back or you want to be brought back or you're thinking about getting brought back or you know somebody needs to be brought back, you're going to love this. You're going to love Psalm 103. If you've got a good heart, you're going to love this. You might jump up and down while I'm talking about it. You might take off running around this building, squall, squall, woo, like that. But then again, you might not. You might just hold that down for a little bit. The Lord is merciful. Aren't you glad? And gracious. Slow to anger. How many years did Jeremiah prophesy? Plenteous in mercy. Verse 9, he will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. If he did, we would be smoking. We'd be a piece of charcoal burnt. If I had gotten what my miserable, wretched life deserved, I couldn't possibly have been here. If a just God had just given a simple just recompense of judgment to me, I would have been poof. There goes another one. Why then would he look at people like us and be long-suffering to us? And why would he do it? Because he is merciful. It is of the Lord's mercies, verse 22 of Lamentations 2. It is of the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed. He saw that. He saw it. We're being consumed. It is of the Lord's mercies that not all of us are going to be consumed. And then verse 11 in Psalm 103, For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them, particularly, that fear him. You know what Ezra wrote in Ezra 9? Ezra said this, about returning from captivity. See, Jeremiah said you're going into captivity. Well, there's Ezra and Nehemiah's over here, and they're going to come back and rebuild the temple and the wall. And this is what Ezra said in looking back at all the histories that's been recorded, noting the sinfulness of his people, the reason for God's judgment, the level of his judgment, and how devastating it was. Yet in spite, he said this, and after all that has come upon us for all our evil deeds and for our great trespass, seeing that thou, our God, has punished us less than our iniquities deserve and has given us such deliverance as this. How indeed could people like myself stand here today or like you sit here today and have the approval of God on your life or have God's hand upon you. How indeed. Because he has not punished us like we deserve to be punished, but has been merciful. And while we were yet sinners, he sent himself in a human body to redeem you from your sins so that you wretched souls don't have to be judged because if he doesn't do something, he must judge you. But to spare us from judgment, he came and rescued the perishing, paid the price, settled the whole debt. The score is settled. Now he says, come unto me, all you that are in captivity. Didn't Jesus' first sermon say he has come to set the captives free, to loose the prison doors, to set at liberty those that were bound? Didn't he do that? 
That's us. It is of the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed. Let me close with this. When you this morning think of compassion, mercy, and the way it comes, grace, all the good things that God did for people who don't deserve anything good at all, nothing. What do you think of? When you see yourself the way you were pre-salvation, the vulgar, nasty way you lived, if you were vulgar and nasty. And here you are today, forgiven, forgiven. That God doesn't see all of that anymore. That's as far as the east is from the west. Now, after how many years has it been since you got saved? After all of that time today, what do you now today think of when you think of compassion and mercy? and grace and goodness. You go, yeah, amen. Or is there something in your heart that still fires up and goes, oh, thank you, Jesus. Because when I hear it, I mean, I may not jump up out of my chair and throw my Bible in the air, whoa! But on the inside, there's something that says, I am so thankful that God has mercy. The court of law says to the guy that broke the speed limit, he was driving 56 miles an hour. I said, what's the law say, young man? Young lady, well, 55. Well, then you're guilty, aren't you? Well, I, but it was only a mile over. What's the law say? There's no mercy in law. There's justice in law. Law says this is the law. Did you break the law? Did you overspeed? Yeah, well, then you're guilty. Now, I'm fair. This is fair. You broke it. Go to jail. Whatever you get, $10,000, fine. Well, that's not fair. It's a law. It's just and it's fair. You don't have to break it. You chose to anyway. This is the consequence. It is just. Well, what's mercy? Well, you know what the law is, don't you? Yes, you're a mile over. Anybody willing to pay his bill? I will. Okay. Try to hold it down. Mercy is when the state trooper comes up to your car and says, do you know how fast you were going? And you being a Christian said, uh-huh. Then he looks at your face and said, are you on something? <laughs> you don't know what to say, yes or no. But you finally say, uh-huh. Your conscience says you're guilty. What your mouth does is this thing up here wrestling with the truth. But he's a merciful trooper. I clocked you going 75 in a 60-mile-an-hour zone. You know what the consequence of that is? That's a fine. You know what it is? But I'm going to let you off this time. That's mercy. That's mercy. You deserved the jail sentence and the $200 fine, whatever it is. But you got off the hook because somebody showed you mercy. Now, this message is not about mercy except God's. But we're warned in the book of James if you're unwilling to show mercy to others, then God will not show mercy to you, and he'll be fair in everything that he does. Just. Let us be thankful to God for all of his goodness, all of his kindness, especially this morning for being long-suffering and putting up with us. 
and for promising to us that when the trouble comes in your life, I will provide for you a way of escape. Amen. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for the richness of it, the heavenly nourishment that is in it to hungry souls. My prayer is that we would be hungry, that we as a congregation of people, as professing Christians, would be hungry, that we would seek to know your ways. Heavenly Father, I ask you to bless those that are here today, those that may be in trouble and having difficulties. It may be physical. It may be mental. It may be at home. It may be with a mate. It may be with a job or money or a mistake that was recently made. Or maybe it's just that lonely feeling that you're never going to be blessed. Whoever they are here this morning, Lord, would you speak with them in a way which only you can. Lord, it's not so much the preaching of the word as much as it is the effect of that same word living inside that puts us over. My prayer is that you will bless everybody here with something, something that can go with them today, something that will not leave them, something which has eternal consequences of deliverance, that you will turn all of our captivities that we will all be delivered from iniquity, that none of us will stand in the day of judgment and be condemned. I thank you, Lord, for your goodness. I thank you for your compassion. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your grace and your long-suffering. I thank you for your gentleness and your meekness and your kindness. I thank you for loving us. May we never forget it. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Purify my heart, let me be as gold and precious silver. Purify my heart, let me be as gold, pure
appropriate song, Ready to Do Your Will. Amen.